You have tuned in to the Voice of the Narrated Puritan, a podcast on Christian experience and assurance of salvation and its analysis. Yesterday I was narrating a sermon by Charles Spurgeon called The Enchanted Ground, taken from the text, Let us not sleep as do others. Today I'm going to talk about the importance of keeping our lamps lit when our Lord comes, Matthew 25. But I want to read the Enchanted Ground part and then expand on this and a number of illustrations from other books. The reading is from Pilgrim's Progress. I saw then in my dream that they went till they came to a certain country whose air naturally tended to make one drowsy. He became a stranger into it. And here Hopeful began to be very dull and heavy asleep. Therefore, he said to Christian, I do now begin to grow drowsy, so that I can scarcely hold up my eyes. Let us lie down here and take one nap. By no means, said the other, less sleeping will never awake more. Why, my brother, sleep is sweet to the laboring man. We may be refreshed if we take a nap. Christian said, Do you not remember that one of the shepherds bid us beware? Of the enchanted ground. He meant by that that we should beware of sleeping. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. First Thessalonians 5 6. Hopeful said, I acknowledge myself in a fault, and had I been here long, I had been sleeping, running the danger of death. I see it is true that the wise man says, Two are better than one. Hitherto has your company been my mercy, and you shall have a good reward for your labor. Tell you a little background story. I started working on line in the year 1991. I was taking a class in telecommunications in Grand Rapids Community College. And so when the internet was becoming worldwide, as we say, I continue to watch its growth. And... I was very interested in some of the works that were starting to be put online, rare works, and it started one of the projects was called the Making of America Project, which came out of the University of Michigan. And at the time, I started to see things scanned into PDF format and put on the internet. And one of the sites that I went through, title by title, under all of the Puritan collections is called the Post-Reformation Digital Library. It's not very well arranged in the sense that they have all kinds of languages of any document that they could find. But they did have a good collection of Puritan works that they had linked to, mostly from the University of Michigan and also from the archive.org. Well, now much of the Making of America project, they're listed at books.google.com. So I went through all the Puritan titles one by one that they had there, and I tried to take a look at the documents, and I came across the name Benjamin Stoneham. Hadn't even heard of him before. S-T-O-N-H-I-M. But I noticed that he had a work on the parable of the ten virgins. But it was whoever wrote the introduction to that really got my attention, and I want to read that now as we talk about the enchanted ground. While the bridegroom tarried, the foolish virgins and the wise virgins all slumbered and slept. Let's talk about this slumber and sleep. I have the first edition PDF open before me, printed in the year 1676. 
to the reader. As in all ages, it has been Satan's design to blind the minds of men, even from our first parents, whom he has soon rocked into a dead sleep with all their posterity, in which they had lain till now had not Christ awakened them. So ever since, and more eminently in the last days, has he so employed all things concurring to the accomplishment of his design, the world, which has ordinarily been a pricking briar, by that means preventing some men sleeping, has been turned into a bed of ease, and the watchman, by whom slumberers should have been awakened, has supported them with pillows. Yea, men have been so disposed to sleep, that they have closed their own eyes until the best have slumbered, and the most are fast asleep, which has ever been dangerous, but now more than ever. Therefore the Lord Jesus Christ, who was manifested to destroy the works of the devil, has knocked at such sleepers' doors by his awakening providences, and by his servants the prophets rising up early and sending them. But now the danger of sleeping unto death is so great that he sends forth a crier at midnight to prevent the ruins that would overwhelm those sleepers by the morning. This is a critical hour, and a last application. Those that do not then recover perish forever. Were we sensible of the present danger of such a nature, we should not be offended at plain dealing. End quote. In chapter 13 of Archibald Alexander's thoughts on religious experience, he differentiates between a perpetual and a temporary backsliding. In defining temporary backsliding, he writes, quote, When we speak of backsliding, we commonly mean those sad departures of real Christians from God, which are so common and often so injurious to the cause of religion. These cases are so common that some have thought that all Christians have their seasons of backsliding when they leave their first love and lose the sweet relish of divine things and are excluded from intimate communion with God. Backsliding occurs when the Christian is gradually led off from close walking with God, loses a lively sense of divine things, becomes too much attached to the world and too much occupied with secular concerns until at length the keeping of the heart is neglected. Prayer and the seeking of the Lord in private are omitted or slightly performed. Zeal for the advancement of religion is quenched and many things once rejected by a sensitive conscience is now indulged and defended, in quote. In its work called Spiritual Declension and Revival of Religion in the Soul, Octavius Winslow, on incipient declension, says if there is one consideration more humbling than another to a spiritually-minded believer, it is that, after all God has done for him, after all the rich displays of his grace, the patience and tenderness of his instructions, the repeated discipline of his covenant, the tokens of love received, and the lessons of experience learned that there should still exist in the heart a principle, the tendency of which is to secret, perpetual, and alarming departure from God. Truly there is in this solemn fact that which might well lead to the deepest self-abasement before him. If in the present early stage of our inquiry into this subject we might be permitted to assign a cause, for the growing power which this late and subtle principle is allowed to exert in the soul, 
We'd refer to the believer's constant forgetfulness of the truth, that there is no essential element in divine grace that can secure it from the deepest declension, that, if left to its self-sustaining energy, such are the hostile influences by which it is surrounded, such the severe assaults to which it is exposed, and such the feeble resistance it is capable of exerting. There is not a moment, as splendid as its former victories may have been, in which the incipient and secret progress of spiritual declension may not have commenced and be going forward in the soul. Believing as we do that no child of God ever recedes into a state of inward declension and outward backsliding, but by slow and gradual steps, and believing too that a process of spiritual decay may be going forward within the secret recesses of the soul, and yet there is no suspicion or fear awakened in the mind of the believer. We feel it of the deepest moment that this state should first be brought to view in its incipient and concealed form. Later on he defines incipient declension. By a state of incipient declension we mean that decay of spiritual life and grace in the believer which marks its earliest and more concealed stage. It is latent and hidden, and therefore the least suspected and the more dangerous. The painful process of spiritual disease may be advanced in the soul so secretly, so silently, and so unobservedly that the subject of it may have lost much ground may have parted with many graces and much vigor, and may have been beguiled into an alarming state of spiritual barrenness and decay before even a suspicion of its real condition has been awakened in its bosom. It does not involve at first any alteration in the essential character of divine grace, but is a secret decay of the health, vigor, and exercise of that grace in the soul. As in the animal frame, the heart loses nothing of its natural function when, through disease, it sends but a faint and languid pulsation through the system. So in the spiritual constitution of the believer, divine grace may be sickly, feeble, and inoperative, and yet retain its character and its properties. The pulse may beat faintly, but still it beats. Divine grace may decline to an alarming extent in its power and exercise. It may be sickly, drooping, and ready to die. It may become so enfeebled through its decay as to prevent an ineffectual resistance to the inroads of strong corruption. So low that the enemy may ride roughshod over it at his will. So inoperative and yielding that sloth, worldliness, pride, carnality, and their kindred vices may obtain an easy and unresisted conquest. This decay of grace may be advancing, too, without any marked decline in the spiritual perception of the judgment as to the beauty and fitness of spiritual truth, the loss of spiritual enjoyment, not of a spiritual perception of the loveliness and harmony of the truth shall be the symptom that betrays the condition of the soul. The judgment shall lose none of its light, but the heart, much of its fervor. The truths of revelation, especially the doctrines of grace, shall occupy the same prominent position as to their value and beauty, and yet the influence of these truths may be scarcely felt. The word of God shall be ascended too, 
but is the instrument of sanctification, of abasement, of nourishment. The believer may be an almost utter stranger to it. Yes, he must necessarily be so while this process of secret declension is going forward in his soul. End quote. In John Owen's work called The Nature and Causes of Apostasy from the Gospel, he writes, The reasons which present themselves to my thoughts as to why there is a spiritual declension is that rooted enmity, which is in the minds of men by nature to spiritual things, abiding uncured under the profession of the gospel, is the original and first spring of this apostasy. This was a fundamental cause of that apostasy from the doctrine and truths of the gospel, which has prevailed in almost the whole visible church. Had the generality of men received the truth and the love of it, had they not had a secret enmity in their hearts and minds against it, had not things vain, curious, and superstitious been suited to the prevailing principles of their minds and affections, and in this lies the present danger of the persons, churches, and nations which at this day make profession of the gospel, for if a pressing trial, or vigorous temptation, if a coincidence of various ways and means of seduction befall them who have received the truth, but not in the love and the power of it, they will be hardly preserved from a general apostasy. Archibald Alexander writes about backsliding. When a Christian is gradually let off from close walking with God, all this may take place and continue long before the person is aware of his danger or acknowledges that there has been any serious departure from God. The forms of religion may still be kept up, an open set avoided, but more commonly backsliders fall into some evil habits. They are evidently too much conformed to the world, and often go too far in participating in the pleasures and amusements of the world, and too often there is an indulgence and known sin into which they are gradually led, and on account of which they experience frequent compunction and make solemn resolutions to avoid it in the future. But when the hour of temptation comes, they are overcome again and again, and thus they live a miserable life, enslaved by some sin over which, though they sometimes struggle hard, they cannot get to victory, End quote. In the book, Cases of Conscience by Samuel Pike and Samuel Hayward, 1755, case number three, this is an important inquiry, but I must preface this. Because the question is, a serious person who scruples or hesitates on moral grounds to comply with the usual practice of playing cards, immediately somebody reads that, 1755, ah, uh, that's legalism. But remember when we were talking about the mortification of sin, these are means employed to the end of our sanctification. This is not a legal thing. This is an evaluation of what those things are that hinder us in a close walk with God. And so, if you take their advice and substitute something else besides playing cards, the advice here is really, really good. It can be applied to a number of things. So, for the most of this particular episode, I want to focus on this case. Reverend Sir, it's a question. I humbly take the liberty to recommend for your consideration a subject which has been of great concern to my mind. In times past, 
I had a great liking for and frequently practiced a game of cards without remorse, as I believe most young people do. But since I have tasted that the Lord is gracious, which I hope is my happy case, I directly laid aside the general practice of it is what I apprehended as unbecoming the Christian character. I have withstood frequent temptations offered for compliance, but once I am in company, I warm up to the game, and upon their solicitation I complied, but not without sharp reproofs of conscience, upon which I secretly purpose to have no more to do with it, and up until now I have kept my resolution. Whether my refusals are needless scruples of conscience or faithful admonitions from God is my question. And as the season is coming on in which a game of cards is commonly practiced, I may possibly fall in the way of temptation to it. I desire to know if by compliance I will sin against God, and if so, what the evil of it particularly consists in. I leave it to your judgment to frame a question from the thoughts suitable to the occasion, end quote. And here is the answer that is given, quote, Has such a conscientious spirit run through the above epistle? I think it may speak the language of many hearts, and therefore I more readily address myself to the consideration of the subject. The serious request contained in the foregoing letter cannot be answered without entering into the merits of the cause. For there is no other way to know whether the scruples in our mind are needless or just as to any particular practice except by applying it to the divine words, the rule of duty. We want to see what we can gather from there by just consequence concerning the point. Therefore, so far as my judgment reaches, I would endeavor to recommend myself seriously and faithfully to every man's conscience in the sight of God, Second Corinthians 4, verse 2. Let me first say a few things which apply in common to the game of cards, and we would say, of so much of the, quote, Christian liberty that we engage in on our day. They aren't, in and of themselves, necessarily wrong. It's the diversions that they lead to. It's not the proper means, maybe, to a certain end of somebody who wants to buffet his body, bring it into subjection, run a race. So he said, I will consider what is specific to this game and others of a similar kind, and so I will show you by degrees and what and how far this game is lawful or unlawful. 1. This diversion with every other, so-called Christian liberty, is certainly evil whenever it is attended with those circumstances that are detrimental and disgraceful. For example, if it is practiced with wicked company, if it is pursued at unseasonable hours, if it infringes on the regular duties of the family, whether civil or religious, if it sets aside or drives into a corner the private duties of prayer, if it occasions putting up high stakes, or if it stirs up the corruptions of anger, envy, revenge, or lays a foundation for swearing, quarrels, and confusions, and it is still more particularly abominable whenever a person's heart is so hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, Hebrew 3, verse 13, as to presume to practice it on the Lord's day. Those who are acquainted with this game and indulge a free use of it cannot help but be sensible that it is very, very often attended with such abominable circumstances, and as it is for the most part attended with, or productive of, these evils. 
Everyone who has any sense of religion and any conscience towards God should therefore be very wary and cautious how he ventures upon it. Number two, this diversion with every other is certainly evil, so far as it is a disgrace and dishonor to the profession of religion. For a professor to give himself up to any diversion, immoderately, is a reproach to him. But for a professor of Christian to be a professed, quote, card player, is a brand and an infamy. When any of them are known to be followers of this practice, their characters are sunk in the esteem of all truly serious Christians and gospel churches. This diversion, or, quote, Christian liberty, or pastime, this diversion with every other is certainly evil so far as it is ensnaring in its own nature. Now, it is very evident from a matter of fact that this game is something peculiarly bewitching and entangling in it. How strongly it captivates the affections, how strangely it draws away the heart, and how powerfully and effectively it fills the mind with vanity. It is to such a degree that a person must be extremely on his guard to escape receiving an unspeakable prejudice to his soul. This diversion, therefore, must certainly be unlawful when it bewitches the mind and produces vanity and carnal affections. Besides, it is known that this game has such a pernicious pleasure in it that it actually enamors the affections. It makes persons extremely fond of it and set upon it as if it is and was a matter of the highest importance to have opportunity for it and to be indulged in it. Generally speaking, this influence on the mind is so efficacious that all arguments and persuasions, all warnings, even the very experience of disadvantages arising from it prove altogether too weak to detach the mind from it. In other words, it has become an addiction, an idol to be worshipped. Many persons are so fond of it that they will forego almost everything rather than be kept back from the infatuating pleasure. What unaccountable eagerness some pursue it with, how they are vexed and grieved at heart, when disappointed of having a game, and what resentment rises in their minds against those who are so faithful as to reprove or keep them from it. That person who attempts to speak a word against it must be accounted a zealot, a legalist, an enemy to pleasure, whenever matters affront to such a length as this, or to anything like it. It is evidence that the gamesters are absolutely intoxicated with their carnal pleasure. Number four, this diversion with every other must certainly be evil when it unfits the soul for spiritual duties. It is readily granted that some diversions are certainly lawful, and it is as readily allowed that some diversion is really necessary. But then, it is only so far as it is suited to unbend the mind for a season from severe thought, or to relax the body to render it more capable of performing necessary duty. Diversion is graciously allowed and designed to fit the body and mind for spiritual and natural duties. But surely a gracious person must acknowledge the following maxim to be a just one, that whatever diversions actually unfit the frame and spirit of the mind for devotional exercises, they so far prove themselves to be hurtful and criminal, 
And therefore, every person who has any regard for the power of godliness in his own soul must judge and condemn himself as guilty before God whenever he engages in such diversions or engages to such a degree as to unfit his soul for this communion with God. If every professor seriously attended to this rule and examined himself by this test, I have no doubt that he would soon be obliged to decline his practice from his own experience. Give me leave here to put one question to your conscience, a question that needs to be put seriously to you, and by you, to yourselves. After you have played a game of cards, or whatever Christian diversion or liberty that you partake in, do you actually find yourselves unfitted by it for spiritual devotion? I strongly suspect that if every one of you who knows what communion with God means, and who would be faithful to yourselves, then all of you would find by sad experience that these, quote, Christian liberties, or this playing of cards, is an absolute enemy to vital religion. Having brought this subject down to experience itself, I beg your leave to offer the following consideration to your thoughts. Since this game is found to be so peculiarly attended with many evils, to be so peculiarly dishonorable and infatuating, and in fact to be such an enemy to vital godliness, what can be the reason for it? Isn't there some ground to suspect that is in the evil itself? If it is not so, how does it come to pass that such evils should necessarily cling to it, or necessarily be produced by it? End quote. Case of the Conscience, Samuel Pike, and Samuel Hayward, Case 3. Now, incipient declension, also called a state of temporary backsliding, has for its root hardness of heart, inevitably. So let me read a Christian directory on directions against hardness of heart. Richard Baxter. It is necessary that some Christians be better informed what hardness of heart is who most complain of it. The metaphor is taken from the hardness of any manner which a workman would make an impression on, and it signifies a passive and active resistance of the heart against the word and the works of God. When it doesn't receive the impressions which a word should make, and doesn't obey God's commands, but after great and powerful means remains, as it was before, unmoved, unaffected, and disobedient. So that hardness of heart is not a distinct sin, but the habitual power of every sin, or the deadness, unmovableness, and obstinacy of the heart in any sin. So many duties and sins as there are, so many ways may the heart be hardened against the word of God, which forbids those sins and commands those duties. It is therefore an error that has had very ill consequences on many persons to think that hardness of heart is nothing but a lack of passionate feeling in the matters which concern the soul, especially a lack of godly sorrow and tears. This has made them over-careful for such tears and grief and passions, and dangerously to make light of many of the greater instances of the hardness of their hearts. Many people who are New Christians, who are taken up in penitential duty, think that all repentance is nothing but a change of opinion, except they have those passionate griefs and tears which indeed would well become the penitent, 
And upon this they take more pains with themselves to affect their hearts with sorrow for sin, and to wring out tears than they do for many greater duties. But when God calls them to love him and to praise him and to be thankful for his mercies or to love an enemy or forgive a wrong, when he calls them to mortify their earthly mindedness, their carnality, their pride, their passion, or their disobedience, they yield but little to his call, and show here much greater hardness of heart, and yet little complain of this, or take notice of it. I entreat to, therefore, to observe that the greater the duty is, the worse it is to harden the heart against it, and the greater the sin is, the worse it is to harden the heart by obstinacy in it. End quote. The Christian Directory. And now we go to the physician for the knife. Is Rabbi John Duncan used to refer to those practical works of John Owen in Volume 6? In Chapter 4, The Mortification of Sin, John Owen says our spiritual life and comfort depend upon the mortification of sin. Isaiah 57, verse 17 to 19. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him. I hid my face and was angry. But he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. The last principle I will assert regarding the necessity of mortification is that we must be killing our sin if we hope to enjoy life, vigor, and comfort in our spiritual lives. We all desire strength and comfort and power and peace in our walk with God, whatever we face or are troubled with in this life. It will be either that we lack strength, power, energy in life, in our obedience and walking with God, or else that we lack peace and comfort and consolation in our relationship with God. Anything a believer experiences in this life that does not belong to one of these two categories does not deserve to be mentioned. If we hope to enjoy any of these in this life, then we must be constantly at work, killing our sin. Every sin that is not put to death by the Spirit will certainly both, one, weaken the soul and steal its strength from it, and number two, darken the soul to steal away its comfort and peace. First, it weakens the soul and deprives it of its strength. When David kept sin in his heart without repenting of it, killing it, it broke all of his bones and stripped him of spiritual strength. So did he complain that he was sick, weak, wounded, and faint. There is no soundness in me. I am feeble and crushed. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. Psalm 38, 3 and 8. Psalm 40, verse 12. A sinful desire not killed will drain all the spirit and strength of the soul, and will weaken it for all duties. Unmortified sinful desires do this in several ways but we shall see only three of them for the sake of brevity. It distracts and diverts the heart itself by confusing the heart's true desires. And mortified sinful desire diverts the heart from the spiritual orientation that is required for a healthy relationship with God, grapples and tangles, and confuses our affections and desires. It renders the object of the sinful desire beautiful, desirable, and inclines the heart to listen to its false promises of joy. In this way, it displaces the love of the Father. When this happens, a soul cannot rightly say to God, You are my portion, because it has something else that it loves instead. Fear, desire, and hope, which are the best emotions of the soul, 
in which it be full of God, will all sadly be entangled with that sinful desire one way or another. Number two, because it causes us to have thoughts that justify and make excuses for it to us. Thoughts are the great salesmen of the soul to supply it with ways to satisfy its desires. If sin is left unmortified in a man's heart, his thoughts must always, continuously, be making provision for the flesh to satisfy its desires. Where sin is not put to death, his thoughts will glaze, adorn, and dress the objects of the flesh and give them a home and a heart, believing their promise of satisfaction. And in the service of a defiled imagination, thoughts are able to do this freely. And number three, it breaks out and actually hinders spiritual duty. Ambitious men must be studying, and worldly men must be working or creating, and a pleasure-seeking vain person must be providing for the pleasures and pride, when they should instead be busied in the worship of God. One unmortified sinful desire may bring about so many various breaches, ruin, weaknesses, and desolations, that if it were my purpose to outline all of them, this discourse would run far longer than I intended. But just as sin weakens, so it also darkens the soul. Sin casts a thick cloud. It spreads itself over the face of the soul and intercepts all the beams of God's love and favor. It takes away all the sense of privilege that our adoption is supposed to bring us. If the soul begins to gather up proper thoughts of consolation through grace, sin quickly scatters him. Therefore, since killing sinful desires is the only way we can get rid of the sin that would deny us both strength and power in our spiritual lives, we may conclude that strength and power in our spiritual life is very dependent upon our killing, indwelling sin. Men that are deeply bothered under the power of their sinful desires may seek help in many ways. They cry to God when they are deeply bothered about their sin, and yet for all their crying they are still not delivered. They use all these other remedies in vain, yet they shall not be healed. Returning to the work by Octavius Winslow, Spiritual declension and revival of religion in the soul, he says, quote, This decay of grace, or this backsliding, may be advancing without any marked decline in a spiritual perception of the judgment as to the beauty and fitness of spiritual truth. This incipient state of declension may not involve any lowering of the standard of holiness, and yet there shall be no ascending of the heart, no reaching forth of the mind towards a practical conformity to that standard. The judgment shall acknowledge the divine laws embodied in the life of Christ to be the rule of the believer's walk. And yet, to so low and feeble a state may vital godliness have declined in the soul. There shall be no panting after conformity to Christ, no breathing after holiness, no resistance unto blood striving against sin. Oh, it is an alarming condition for a Christian man when the heart contradicts the judgment and the life belies a profession, when there is more knowledge of the truth than experience of its power, more light in the understanding than grace in the affections, more pretension in the profession than holiness and spirituality in the walk. And yet to this sad and melancholy state, it is possible for a Christian professor to be reduced 
how should it lead a man of empty notions, of mere creeds, of lofty pretension, of cold and lifeless orthodoxy, to pause, search his heart, examine his conscience, and ascertain the true state of his soul before God? This state, a secret departure from God may exist in connection with an outward and rigid observation of the means of grace, and yet, there shall be no spiritual use of or enjoyment in the means, and this, it may be, is a great lullaby of his soul, rocked to sleep by a mere formal religion. The believer is beguiled into the delusion that his heart is right, and his soul prosperous in the sight of God. Even more than this, a declining believer may have sunk so deeply into a state of formality as to substitute the outward and the public means of grace for a close and secret walk with God. He may have taken up his abode in the outer courts of the temple. He may dwell in the mere porch of the sanctuary, frequent, or even occasional retirement consecrated to meditation, self-examination, the reading of God's word, and secret prayer may yield to an outward, bustling form of godliness. Public and committee meetings, religious societies, business and professional engagements, wherein a religious aspect, and even important in their subordinate places, may thrust out God from the soul, and exclude Christ from the heart, and that a believer should be satisfied to live at this poor dying rate, content to dwell amid the din and the bustle of the outworks, it's one of the most palpable and alarming symptoms of this spiritual decline, the decline of the life of God in his soul. When a professing man can proceed with his accustomed religious duties strictly, regularly, formally, and yet experience no enjoyment of God in them, no filial nearness, no brokenness and tenderness, and no consciousness of sweet return, he may suspect that his soul is in a state of secret, incipient backsliding from God satisfying and feeding a soul, if feeding it may be called, with a lifeless form. What stronger symptoms needs he of its real state? A healthy, growing state of religion in the soul demands more of its nourishment and support than this. A believer panting for God, hungering and thirsting after righteousness, his grace is thriving, a heart deeply engaged in spiritual duties, lively, prayerful, humble, and tender. Ascending in its frame and desires, a state marked by these features cannot be tied down to a lifeless, spiritless form of religious duties. These were but husks to a healthy state of the life of God in the soul. It wants more. It will hunger and thirst, and the spiritual longing must be met. And nothing can satisfy and satiate it but living upon Christ, the bread and the water of life. I am the bread of life. If any man thirsts, let him come unto me and drink. My flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. The professing man that goes all of his days without this nourishment, thus starving his soul, may well exclaim, My leanness, my leanness. Oh, how solemn to such are the words of our Lord. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you, John 6, verse 53. When a professing man can read his Bible with no spiritual taste, or when he searches it 
not with a sincere desire to know the mind of the Spirit in order to a holy and obedient walk, but with a merely curious or literary taste and aim. It is a sure evidence that the soul is making but a retrograde movement in real spirituality. Nothing perhaps more strongly indicates the tone of a believer's spirituality than the light in which the scriptures are regarded by him. They may be read, and yet, read as any other book. Without the deep and solemn conviction that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. When a professing Christian can pray and yet acknowledge that he has no nearness to the throne, no touching of the scepter, no fellowship with God, calls him father without the sins of adoption, confess a sin in a general way, without any looking up to God through the cross. He has no consciousness of possessing the ear in the heart of God. The evidence is undoubted of a declining state of religion in the soul. And when, too, he can find no sweetness in a spiritual ministry, when he is restless and dissatisfied under a searching and practical unfolding of the truth, when a believer has but few dealings with Christ, his blood, but seldom has traveled to his fullness, but little lived upon his love and glory scarcely mentioned, the symptoms of declension in the soul are palpable. Thank you for tuning in to this class on Christian Experience and Assurance, Spiritual Declension, we want to talk, maybe in a future episode, of the revival of religion and the soul. What are the means to its end? This is a voice of the narrated Puritan. <laughs>